Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I'm your host, Michelle Berard, founder and CEO of Michelle A. Berard LLC and Urban Book Editor. And I'm very happy to share this hour with you where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. Now, I know we're all feeling the strain of the ongoing pandemic and the issues it's brought to the surface, particularly here in the United States. I just hope you're doing what you need to to take care of yourselves and your families. Now is not a time to let social distancing keep us separated. Make sure you're connecting via telephone or FaceTime or even letters. I'd love to see the art of letter writing become a thing again. I'm not ashamed to say that I'm old enough to remember when getting mail was fun, not just a bunch of bills and junk mail. However you decide to do it, make sure you're checking on your people and being safe. You guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and though we've grown onto our own platform, we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I want to say thank you to my guest on the September 11th show, author B.G. Howard. You can connect with B.G. on social media. If you missed that show, make sure you listen to the replay. You can find our complete show archives, including the September 11th show, at thesomewhereinthemiddlepodcast.com. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Genius is Common movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. This is a really important message, especially for the youth, but it's not just for the youth. We adults sometimes need to be reminded that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. Now, this week's guest was so lovely, I didn't want to end the conversation and you'll soon see why. Dr. Beverly A. Browning has been consulting in the areas of grant writing, RFP responses, technical writing, and organizational development for over four decades. Her clients have included tribal nations, nonprofit organizations, small businesses, career, volunteer, and combination fire departments, chambers of commerce, faith-based organizations, units of government, including state and federal government agencies, school districts and colleges, charter schools, social and human service organizations, hospitals, service associations, and Fortune 500 corporations. Dr. Browning has assisted clients and workshop participants throughout the United States in receiving awards of more than $500 million. Dr. Browning is the author of 43 grant-related publications, including six editions with over 1 million books sold, of Grant Writing for Dummies. She is also an international trainer and keynote speaker. In 2015, she was selected by the Centers for Disease Control and ICRD Division to conduct a five-day grant writing boot camp in South Africa for ministers of health and other top-level health directors from 23 African countries. Dr. Browning holds graduate and postgraduate degrees in organizational development, public administration, and business administration. She has been a grant writing course developer and online facilitator for Cengage Learning for 19 years. Her online courses, which have been taught to thousands of students annually, are Advanced Proposal Writing, Becoming a Grant Writing Consultant, and A to Z Grant Writing, Part 2, 
Beyond the Basics. Dr. Browning is the founder and director of the Grant Writing Training Foundation and CEO for Bev Browning LLC. She was a 17-year member of the Grant Professionals Association and has presented training workshops and keynote presentations for multiple GPA chapters US-wide. In 2017, Dr. Browning joined the Association of Fundraising Professionals and was a workshop presenter at their 2018 International Conference in New Orleans. She is also an approved trainer for GPA and CFRE International. Dr. Browning has been married 54 years to John and has one daughter, Lara, a licensed therapist, and a special needs granddaughter, Aaliyah. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Beverly A. Browning to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Dr. Bev, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you may or may not have heard, but I like to start my interview with just two questions. And okay. I ask these because I think they kind of give us a sense of who you are. And so if you're ready. Yes, I'm ready. Dr. Beverly A. Browning, who are you and how did you become who you are today? Oh, that's so funny. Um, let's see. I am a dreamer as far as visioning and setting goals and crossing them off and then adding more goals because I feel like there's nothing to do if I don't have goals. Um, I am a hard worker. I am a wife of 54 years. Uh, I'm a mother to one daughter who is a, a licensed clinical um, counselor, therapist, and a grandma to a 12-year-old special needs granddaughter who is awesomely beautiful and exceeding all developmental delays um, given all of her conditions. But mainly, I, I believe I'm just... Uh, the new term here is thought leadership. Well, when I started this 44 years ago, uh, I had no idea what thought leadership was. I just know that the organization that I volunteered for and set on the board of directors for as well uh, needed some grant money. They had an emergency and there was no place for them to go, so they thought. And as vice president of their board, the only um, minority on the board and the youngest as well. I got there first and the executive director was kind of stressing out and talking about losing this money and you know what we're we gonna do and, and I said well how can I help and she said get us a grant and I said well how would I do that? What's a grant? I don't know about grants to go to school and she said you're sitting on my board, you're vice president, if something happens to the president, the responsibility of overseeing this organization falls on you, and you don't know how to connect us with grant money and help us get it. And she said, why are you taking up a seat on this board? And I felt humiliated and discouraged. And when the older uh, members of the board came in, uh, mostly men, I said to them, you know, the agency is losing some money and Sybil needs a grant. That was our executive director's name, Sybil. Mm -hmm. And I said, Sybil needs a grant 
and I don't know how to help her. You guys have been on boards all over town. You have more experience. You were in your 50s and 60s. I'm still in my 20s. How can you point me to the resources I need to help her find a grant, or how can you do it? And they all just sat there with their mouths kind of open unbelievably. And they said, we know nothing about grants. That's up to the staff to figure out, go find, and get. We're only here to pass motions, make motions, pass resolutions, and look at the finances. Mm. And it was like, okay, sounds like a disconnect here for the entire board, but what do I know about boards? So I went to the library and the next day, took off for my full-time job, uh, lost pay to take off because I felt it was my civic duty to find out there were no books on the shelf. That was the first seed that planted in me. I needed to be an author of as many books as possible. Mm. And then I asked the librarian if she had a directory of foundations. I'm from Flint, Michigan. So I said, do you have a directory of, of foundations um, that award money here to nonprofits? And she said, well, we don't have any books like that, but I do have an old tattered notebook that I've made notes about three foundations here locally. If you wanna look at the notebook, you can. And I said, sure. And I, I saw the name of a foundation that I thought I knew the family for. In fact, I was pretty sure it was familiar. It was the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. Mm -hmm. My grandfather used to work for the Mott Estate, which was called Applewood, way back in the day. And I went home and I called my grandmother and I said, how can you connect me with somebody at the Mott Foundation? And she said, oh, that's not a problem at all. Just call up and ask for the director. It's Charles Stewart Mott's son-in-law that is the director. And tell him that you're Clay Mitchell's granddaughter and that you've been to Applewood with him on Saturdays when you were little. And, and you were the little girl that your grandfather said, always sat on the steps and talk to uh, Mr. Mott. And I said, hold it. Is Mr. Mott the person that I've always called Uncle Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she said, yeah, that's, that's him, Charles Stewart Mott. And I said, oh, my goodness. I've seen him sitting on the bench down in downtown Flint when I've come out of the dime store. And I've always gone over and said, hey, Uncle Charlie, how you doing? And she said, that's Charles Stewart Smott. He's one of the world's few millionaires. And yes, Applewood is his estate. <laughs> wow. So I got the appointment and Bill White, uh, who's his son-in-law, gave me a little pamphlet with all the little guidelines in it. Much easier back in the day than it is today. And told me to go home and type up a response, have our executive director write a cover letter, and bring it back for him to review. Well, I did that, and um, I didn't have a typewriter, so I had somebody in my neighborhood type up the pages for a dollar a page after I wrote them out uh, in longhand on notebook paper, and edited it and took it back, and finally got a clean copy that I liked, and took it to our executive committee at the board. We wrote a cover letter and put on it. We didn't even go to the executive director. I had explained to them how snippy she was about mm -hmm. getting a grant. Um, so we bypassed her. And I went back. And when I was 
giving it to um, Bill White, I said, Bill, you know our executive director. Why has, has she been here to ask you for grant money throughout the years? And he said, no. And I said, well, you know her, but does she know you? And he said, uh, she should. I go to her husband's church. I see them every Sunday. He, her husband's a pastor. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And he said, and I play golf with them. And we've had dinner at their house. And I said, and she's never asked you for a grant or money to help the volunteer center. And he said, no. And I said, what's the secret? What am I missing as a board member? And he said, what you're missing is you don't receive unless you ask. Mm. So that's who I became. Um, That was never my goal to be a grant writer, but that grant application was funded um, to the tune of three years at at a little around $300,000. And that was a lot, lot of money back in the 70s. So the word got around the community that I wrote this grant and it got funded and it was a big deal. And other nonprofit executive directors started to call me at home and say, can you come on our board and and help us with grants? And I said, no, I can't come on your board. I work full time and I'm in college four nights a week and Saturday morning. I said, but I can take it on as a volunteer, uh, you know, payment back to the community, like community service, um, but it needs to be things without deadlines because my schoolwork and my family come first. And they said, no problem. So I just did it free. And I did it free for probably two or three years. And then we were really poor and I needed something. I needed my um, oven repaired. It had been broken for a long time. And Thanksgiving was coming up and we had no way to cook a turkey. And I just, somebody called and I put them on hold, I remember, or just laid the phone down and I said to my husband, I can't afford to volunteer anymore and somebody's asking me to do a grant proposal for them. I said, I want to ask for enough money to repair the stove. And he said, well, the stove bill is like $220. And I said, okay, then that's what I'm going to ask for. So I asked for that and they said, do you want to come down and pick up a check tomorrow? (laughs) Wow, that's awesome. Um, and that's when I realized I could get paid for this. <laughs> that's awesome. And I think sometimes it's, we don't realize that our gifts are potentially profitable. That was a perfect example of how you were kind of, it sounds like you were kind of pushed into it, huh? Yeah, the community had always helped me. I got scholarships. I got um grants from uh, associations and societies where I gave speeches or wrote essays. Um, So, I mean, the community helped me afford to go to college because we were very poor and, you know, married at 18, started college at 20 and just struggling with every dollar books, uh, fuel to get back and forth to class. And so every agency I can think of that knew me stepped up because they knew my story and and how my life had been. Um, Dysfunctional was not even a word in use back then. 
but they helped. People just came up and said, you know, we know that you're trying to get an education and we want to give you this check for $250 to go towards books or whatever you need. And that happened a lot. So I felt like when I finally got my associate's degree, which was 12 years after I started the two-year program at community college, that I just needed to, one, volunteer to be on a board, two, um, understand nonprofits more, because I had been working in the for-profit sector, and three, give back to the community in a way that they supported me. Wow, that's beautiful. So what, if you don't mind my asking, um, what, what was so dysfunctional? Um, my parents didn't raise me. My older grandparents who were in their late 60s when they took me um, and obviously not expecting to have to take a, a nine-month-old infant away from parents and raise her. But that's what they did because my parents were young and, and foolish and immature and not ready for a baby. My dad was 18, my mom was 20. Um, and it was just, it, I was born in November and uh, I've been told that they had me outside in a metal stroller with no blanket, no winter gear whatsoever, just in a little, um, I guess you call it a onesie or something. Mm -hmm. And I, I caught pneumonia, obviously, oh, and had to be hospitalized. So mm -hmm. um, my grandmother told them she would take me, and they were more than relieved to give me to my grandparents. It was my dad's parents. So I lived with them for 12 years. Uh, my parents were supposed to pick me up on the weekend and bring me home to their house to visit. But my dad was working on becoming an aspiring international jazz musician, which he did eventually become. Um, and my mom wanted to keep up with my dad and make sure nobody that was, uh, no woman was hanging around him. And because he did all of his gigs in nightclubs, um, there was a lot of drinking going on, both in the clubs and at home. And they never, most of the weekends, I, I never saw my parents. I ended up with my grandparents all weekend. I didn't go home until I was 13. And I was there from until I was from 13 till about 17 and a half, maybe almost not quite 18 years. Um, the worst moments, years of my entire life. Wow. But is that partly what ends? Inspired you to? It inspired me to get married at 18. It inspired okay. me to find my own husband and to grill him with a bunch of questions and make promises like, you know, you won't ask me to start a family until I at least have one college degree. I'm not going to stop then. I'm going to go all the way through. So you need to be able to support me. I'm not asking you to take the burden of financials for wherever we live. I will work. I will work as many jobs as it takes. As long as you know, we're not starting a family until I have an associate's degree. And I'm going to be in college for a long time. And you have to be able to support that. And my husband said, you know, the man's supposed to ask the woman to marry him and make commitments. And he said, I can't believe that you brought this up. 
And I said, take it or leave it. I don't have a lot of time. I've got to find somebody before I graduate from high school. <laughs> so we got engaged um, in June of 1966, and we got married in December of that same year. Mm -hmm. And you've been together ever since. Yes. That's amazing. Yes, I mean, 54 is. years, that's a long time. It is. And my education um, went all the way, formal education went all the way through my master's, and then my doctorate is honorary. Wow, okay. So how did you start writing the books? I think I started writing the books back in the 1980s. Um, I was finishing up my bachelor's, accelerated bachelor's program by then, and starting on my master's, and I, the first book was just so very simple. It was called Grant Writing, the Manual, and I wrote everything I knew in there and sold it um, on Amazon, on my website, and at training programs that I created, and it just, I saw a high interest there because there weren't any books out still that were extensive on grant writing. And then I did grant writing the, I think it was the video, and then grant writing the CD. Um, and then I started to advance into more customized and sophisticated titles like grant writing for educators, grant writing for faith-based organizations, things like that. Mm -hmm. So it just, I fell into it because people kept saying, you know, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. All your grants that you write, all your grant applications are getting funded. You need to write a book. <laughs> and I never had any rejections from the time I volunteered all the way through when I started charging a fee and was doing it part time. I did not have a rejection until... I went full-time in January of 1989, um, right after I got my master's degree, and I don't think I had a rejection for the first three years. Wow. When I got the rejection, I didn't even know that they existed, honestly. I was <laughs> so naive. <laughs> I mean, I cried. I cried. I went through every page, word for word, trying to see if I made a mistake. Because, you know, did I duplicate a sentence? Did I leave something out? And what did you learn from that? Um, I learned that in the world of real grants, there are so many of them that are submitted, and there's a huge competition that even the, the most well-written grant applications or proposals are not always funded. And the reasons, are, the reasons for not getting funded are out of the control of the grant writer. So what should, well, first of all, who needs, who, who, who are your clients? Who would need a grant? Um, I've had so many clients over the years, cities, towns, villages, state agencies, um, I've had school districts, colleges, universities, small nonprofits, medium sized, large sized nonprofits, for profit um, medical research groups, for profit uh, nursing home providers. So 
I've had a ton of a variety of clients. The only kind of grants I don't write are grants that benefit just one individual, like an artist applying for uh, a grant to do a residency in Vermont for the summer. I don't do grants for individuals. Okay. So what are some common elements of a grant? Like if I, if I had a nonprofit and I wanted to get a grant, what would be my first steps in trying to figure out, well, is a grant even, where would I go looking for money? Go meet with your local community foundation and have a conversation with them about when you were founded, mm -hmm. what your current financials are, who's on your board, how many are on your board, their ethnicity, their gender, the segments of the community that they represent, um, that you do have a strategic plan because brand new nonprofits just starting out, you have no marketable assets to go after a grant. You have to have documents completed. You have to have a board that is full and capable and already doing fundraising for seed money because a grant isn't gonna be there to help you start up from scratch with zero dollars on your own. Mm -hmm. So you go to your Let's local say, community foundation, uh -huh. ask well, for a meeting and go in and be, talk to them. It could be any any type of organization in your community is what I'm hearing, not a um, particular one. You mean type of foundation? Yeah, like what kind of? No, these foundations actually have the name community foundation in them, oh, like okay. Sandy, a greater San Diego community foundation. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And their job is to help uh, other help nonprofits get their going. job is to counsel new nonprofits on how they become more financially viable to be able to apply for a grant. So it's like SCORE, but for nonprofits. Uh-huh. For, so for listeners who don't know what SCORE is, SCORE is a, a group of folks who work with SBA. Uh, they have experience in business and, and finance and things like that, and they can help coach new businesses uh, so our new business owners so that they can get their business to be as viable as possible. So yes. uh, the community foundation serves a similar purpose for nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And just about every, every state, first of all, and territory has community foundations and you just have to look around you or ask someone, um, do we have a community foundation? If you're not familiar with it, you can also Google it uh, on the internet directory of community foundations and click the state that you're in and something will come up. You'll see, you know, multiple community foundations. So you've been working primarily with nonprofits and maybe government counties, things like that, school districts. What kinds of issues do you find that they tend to have that they're going after grant money for? Um, when they're not familiar with how to work with a grant writer, uh, especially a contract grant writer, they um, want to treat you like an employee and they don't have all their ducks in a row as far as the type of documents that are required by anybody who's going to write their grant application. A lot of information is needed. It has to be more than we need money 
Um, I've had so many of these potential clients call up and, you know, we discuss something and then I'll say, well, how can I help you? We need money. We need a million dollars by September. And it's like September of what year? And then there's a pause <laughs> and they'll say, well, this year in a couple of months. And I'll say, I can't help you. That is not possible. And if you find someone who says they can help you and requires the full payment up front, you better do an FBI background check before you sign a contract. Mm. So our organizations, is it, is it that there's no funding like that or it just that the amount of time that it takes? to put together it's a property. too soon. This right. is already June. So even if they called me in May and said they needed a million dollars by September, who's going to give it to them? Mm -hmm. If they don't have a relationship already built, mm -hmm. if they don't already know who they're going to go to and ask for the grant, if they haven't been approached by a foundation that is familiar with them that has said, hey, we have a million dollars, we're going to make a decision in September. We want you to submit a proposal. Okay, that has a 50% or greater chance of being funded when the funder comes to the grant applicant and invites them to apply and tells them they have some money set aside. Mm -hmm. That is a whole different scenario that is easy to write for and collect information for. But when they haven't talked to anybody, the client, potential client mm -hmm. and they don't have any paperwork ready to share with a grant writer but they want to go on contract right away um, those are red flags well and then I'm curious too is there like a cycle for grants like more grants are all year round no they're oh. all year round there's no up and down there's mm -hmm. if you really want to be a grant writer there's going to be something to write every day of the week and how is that as a career or as a business? Obviously, it's made you pretty happy, right? You've enjoyed doing this and serving your community in this way. What kind of I have enjoyed you doing it, but I'm working, I, I'm emerging in 2020 uh, under a different business model that is less writing of grants mm -hmm. and more online training for potential grant seekers, all kinds of clients which are eligible applicants, as well as grant writers who need to improve their skills. And I'm also creating um, new curriculum. Uh, so with all of that, uh, my plate is full. Mm -hmm. And actually, um, since January, normally I would be writing a grant proposal maybe one per week. Mm -hmm. Not heavy federal applications, those I give to my team members um, around the country. But I typically take foundation and corporate requests because I, I love those the most. They are the most fun. You can be creative. You can have a lot of fun writing for corporate and foundation. Federal, not so much. More like a snoozer. Yeah. Um, and I need, I need constant brain motivation. And so other people get the federal and I take a little stuff but since January I've made it a point to only focus on curriculum development and I'm writing my first grant application um, I started last week the first one of the year oh wow okay well what would you uh, it sounds like your training would help someone who wants to be a grant writer or maybe is a grant writer already and wants to learn more what kinds of things do you share 
in your curriculum. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we go through <coughs> 33 competencies from the person who comes to the course that is not a grant writer, has never written grants, but they think that's what they want to do, to the person who's already a grant writer, who already has a consulting business, but their revenue has gone flat. And it went flat before COVID. Mm -hmm. So they're desperate. Um, I'm going to have to cough again just a minute. <coughs> okay. So they take the class and they learn everything from scratch. They find out during the class, if they're an experienced grant writer, a lot of the things they've been doing, they haven't been doing them right. And it's the reason they haven't had a lot of their grant applications or proposals for their clients funded. And now the wells run dry because they're not producing a high enough return on investment <clears throat> for, their, for their clients or employers. So it sounds like the course is good for really someone at any level so that they can. Yes, I, uh, you're right. I had uh, a Saturday coaching class that ran from January until the end of April. I refer to them as cohort one. Mm -hmm. They completed 16 weeks of one hour every Saturday with me on Zoom and they had homework in between, and they also had a one-on-one -on -one consultation with me each alone every month. Mm -hmm. um, their competencies across the board increased by 83% from week mm -hmm. one to week 15. Awesome. The next cohort starts August 1st and mm -hmm. ends around the middle of November, mm -hmm. and it will be, uh, a customized curriculum again based on their feedback that they gave me when they submitted their application to be considered for the coaching mentoring program. Um, and I did a SWAT, SWAC assessment form and they filled it out. So they had to write their strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and challenges. And then I look at all of those applications and start to collectively write down commonalities in weaknesses and challenges, and also similar opportunities not taken out of fear, um, mm. think they could work out of state, things like that. And all of that is covered in the course. They get tons of resource handouts each week, and they also get a copy of the Zoom recording as soon as it's available. So they leave after 16 weeks with well over 100 resource documents and 16 videos. Wow, that's awesome. And in their assignments, they have done a complete funding search for a real or fictitious project, and they've written an entire grant application, all the components. That's amazing. So that sounds like, well, no wonder 83% increase in competency across the board. That's, a, it sounds like they've got a lot of hands on. They do, they have, they do. And I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a coach. I'm a hard coach. Let's, let me put it that way. <laughs> That's awesome though. So yes, if you had, let's say three, 
things that you wanted to share with someone who's thinking about getting into grant writing, what would those three key, key tips, key ideas be? Get training. Mm -hmm. Develop a revenue diversification plan. Can't just live off of grant writing alone. Some of most, some of your clients will be just one-time projects. They won't be like on a monthly retainer. They're here today and gone when you're done with the project. Other clients will be on a monthly retainer, but because it's built into their general operating budget, depending on their other sources of revenue, or if they have a, a hardworking development director bringing in fundraising monies and endowment or plan giving dollars, um, then you might be on a long-term contract. It could last three, five, eight, 10 years. I worked with one client for 12 years um, on a monthly retainer. And that's probably the longest client I've had on a monthly retainer. However, today, grant writers need to, anybody who's gonna be in this field needs to think about what can my service roster be so that I'm not a grant writing machine that burns out in the first two years. Got it. And you can't be on deadline all the time and not begin to show the stress in health issues. So self-care is very important as well, then, is one of the things I'm hearing. Yes, you need to practice mindfulness. You need to practice saying no without feeling guilty. And most importantly, you need to be able to draw the line in the sand when a client is not cooperating, is disrespectful, calls you a name, or refers to a certain popula population of people as those people or them. Um, I will not tolerate that in any clients that I work with. Okay, so you know I'm gonna have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Given today's extraordinary climate, um, I mean, are, are you seeing a lot of clients really kind of doing a turnaround or kind of, or a lot of potential clients kind of watching their language a little bit more uh, given um, this, everything that's going on? Well, this year you have to remember, I've only had one grant writing client by choice. Mm -hmm. um, and the person was of the same ethnicity, so that was not a problem. Full respect, um, mm -hmm. both ways, two ways, two-way communication respect. But I would say, last year, did I have some potential clients call me and, or years, prior years, and act uh, unruly? Yes, and I knew it was because um, for years, uh, I didn't have my photo on any of my internet materials and I didn't send anything out for marketing with my photo. It was always a copy of the book. Mm -hmm. So you need to know in all these years, in 44 years, I've only seen fewer than 5% of my clients face to face. Wow. Everyone has been virtual and I love it that way. Um, I am not a fan of meetings for the sake of meeting. Mm -hmm. Give me the information. Let me do the job. 
Um, and if you've seen one school, you've seen all schools. If you've seen mm -hmm. one daycare, you've seen all daycares. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to go see something to get it into your heart and your mind what the need is. You need to see the documents to see what the need is. What are they saying they can't do? Where are the financial red flags in their budget? Things like that. So that was two things now, get training and diversify your services so you have diversified revenues. Don't just mm -hmm. depend on grant writing. And the third thing is brand yourself. Hire no one to do your marketing or anything else, you know you the best. You know how you want yourself represented. You, your name is all you have when you're in business, when you're a consultant. Protect your name fiercely. Don't take offers that sound too good to be true from people that want to partner with you, from people who want to use your name to promote an event, um, for people who tell you, but this is an, quote, opportunity, unquote, for you to get your name out there if you do this for it free. Mm -hmm. You're starting a new business. You're gonna still, you're gonna have startup bills and you're gonna have ongoing bills. Your power company doesn't give you an opportunity to skip a year's <laughs> worth of payments. <laughs> oh, they'll give you the opportunity to go without lights, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I just want them to be ethical, know that they can't work on a percentage or commission or they have to have a flat fee for you know one-time project or a monthly retainer for an ongoing project they cannot be paid from the funded grant the organization has to be on its feet financially to have funding from other sources to pay for either a salary grant writer or a contract grant writer good things to look out for yeah things to look out for so Tell folks, if you don't mind, Dr. Bev, where they can connect with you. How can they find you and where can they get your books? <laughs> okay. Um, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn under Dr. Beverly Browning. All you have to do is type it in the search bar on LinkedIn and it will come up and then uh, ask me to connect with you or send a connection invite. That's the best way. And once they connect, they can send me uh, a message inside of LinkedIn called an in-message. And I check my in-messages four times a day, so I'm really quick to respond and try to provide a link with a resource if they need some additional information about something or if it looks like it's going to be a long return message on my part then i'll actually set up a time to have a short telephone call with them typically that call is limited to 15 minutes and the worst thing anyone can ever write to me or say to me is that they want to pick my brain because those people get blocked on linkedin I, I don't like the term pick my brain. I would rather have you say, you know, I'd just like to chat with you for a while about an idea to see if you think that there might be grant funding someplace for me. I mean, just get to the point, but don't use the term pick your brain or pick my brain. It is very offensive. Okay, well, there you go. And what about your course? How can, how can people sign up for that or 
how can they apply? Because I understand that there's an application process. If they're applying for the Saturday coaching mentoring program, which is when they get me one-on-one -on -one a lot, um, that one is, again, through LinkedIn. They ask me to connect with them, and then once we connect, they post a message and say, can you give me more information about your coaching mentoring program? I will attach two documents in the end message, and once they tell me they're ready to submit those documents, I provide my email. And then once I get their application and resume and go over it, I set up a Zoom session so we can see each other so they know who their trainer's gonna be. And there's nobody that is upset when all the pictures come on the screen day one of the coaching mentoring program. Got it, got it. And where can they get your books? Um, at any store. It's available on Amazon. It's available at Barnes and Noble, every Walmart, every place that sells books has grant writing for dummies all over the world. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you guys heard it. You can connect with Dr. Bev on LinkedIn. Make sure you look her up as Dr. Beverly Browning and send her an in-message. Do not say you want to pick her brain because she will block <laughs> you. Do not say that at all. But do invite you know, her to communicate with you and ask questions and get information about this fabulous course. And then, of course, you can also find her books online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the likely suspects, right? All the usual suspects, as they say. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Michelle. Thank um, you, did Dr. you know that I also teach online for ed to go no, I did not know that. Oh, it's called ED and then the number two go, add to go. And I have been teaching three classes for 21 years for them. Wow. Uh, A to Z grant writing part two, advanced proposal writing, which is the basics plus more, and becoming a grant writing consultant. Oh, well, that sounds like a great place to start too, just to get some yeah. general information. It is. That's awesome. So you can also get Dr. Bev at her courses on Ed2Go. That's perfect. So for those of you who are interested, I encourage you to look into this. I think that we all need to be looking at opportunities where we can create something for ourselves, not relying on corporate America so much. I think we saw with this pandemic that sometimes you have to be able to make your own way. And I think it helps to have, whether it's a side hustle or it's something that you want to build up you know, full-time. I'm a big proponent of folks starting their own businesses. Me too. Oh, and they need to have an accountant. Once their annual income exceeds, I would say, 50000 they need to have uh, a consultation with an accountant to determine if they should stay a sole proprietor, go as an LLC, or go as a full S-corp. There you go. And that's going to probably vary by state. Uh, yes, it will vary by state, but I made the mistake of waiting. In the first six months that I was out there full time, I made like $86,000. And I just had a little red book, money in, money out, money in, money out. It was mm -hmm. so easy mm -hmm. um, until my husband said, I think you need an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so good that I, he said that, right? <laughs> yeah, and then I got a CPA and they said, oh my God goodness, you owe this, you owe estimated taxes. Uh, you should have been drawing payroll. Um, 
if you require your staff to come in at a certain time and work so many hours a day, you know, you have to have these documents in place. Well, I didn't know any of that. Um, so I learned the hard way, um, but I've had an accountant ever since. And I would not be able to still be in a viable business this year between COVID um, and everything else that's going on without an accountant advising me on, hey, let's do this, let's do that, let's try for this, let's try for that. But that's why you can help guide other people because you did learn the hard way. So I did learn the hard way. You've got all that knowledge to share. I think that's awesome. Well, Dr. Beth, thank you so much for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Burrard. Thank you for asking me. It's such an honor to be interviewed by you. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michelleberard.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Don't forget to tune in to hear Julia Black and me live on Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Pacific, 4.30 p.m. Eastern at https colon slash slash rebrand.ly slash shelter in place live stream and make sure you tune into this show on october 9th when my guest will be finance and insurance expert jason zara you can find us twice a month on fridays at 5 p.m pacific 6 p.m mountain 7 p.m central and 8 p.m eastern at the somewhere in the middle podcast.com let's continue the conversation You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.